Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 12. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this week we are kicking off perhaps the most unbelievable story of individual survival in all the history of the Americans, the disastrous Narvaez expedition and the amazing journey of Cabeza de Vaca and friends. I am recording this on March 10th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. One day in the spring of 1536, a group of Spaniards on horses were ranging north along the Pacific coast of Mexico on the coastal plain between the Sierra Madre Occidental to the east and the Great Ocean to the west on their left. They were looking for Indians to capture and enslave in a region unsettled and even unexplored by Europeans. In the distance, a vanguard of four horsemen saw 13 Indians clad in skins. These Indians at first seemed entirely like other Indians in the region, except that rather than running from the Spanish horsemen, they walked straight toward them. Now let's turn to a passage by Professor Andres Resendez of the University of California, Davis, who renders the encounter vividly enough. At closer range, the unexpected details began to emerge. One of the natives seemed very dark. In fact, he was black. Was he an Indian too, or an African emerging from the depths of North America? The horseman's unease must have turned into shock when they realized that one of the others in the group was a white man. He had gone completely native. His hair hung down to his waist, and his beard reached to his chest. The man's skin was leathery and peeling. As the two parties approached, the slavers could hear that the haggard white man spoke perfect Spanish. They became dumbfounded. They remained looking at me for a long time, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca would later recall, so astounded that they neither talked to me nor managed to ask me anything. Cabeza de Vaca had to do the talking. He first asked to be taken to the slaver's captain. Next, he wanted to know what the Christian date was and requested to have it officially recorded. The precise date has not reached us in spite of Cabeza de Vaca's insistence, but it must have been in April, 1536. After these formalities were out of the way, Cabeza de Vaca and his African companion, a resilient slave named Esteban, began to tell their story of wandering adrift in a completely alien continent, a tale that had begun eight years earlier with a flawed leader in search of redemption. Here's the short version. Two other surviving Spaniards, Captains Alonso del Castillo and Andres Dorantes, were waiting just over the horizon with 600 more Indians who were the passionate followers of what might have been the first North American mass religious movement. Eight years before, Cabeza de Vaca, Esteban, del Castillo, and Dorantes had landed in the vicinity of Tampa Bay, Florida, with almost 300 other men under the command of Panfilo de Nevaez, with the intention of establishing a permanent settlement. These four were the only survivors of that huge landing party, from the long-lost Narvaez expedition, and their tale is astonishing both as a lesson in human resilience under unbelievably harrowing conditions and as the first thoughtful and sympathetic anthropological observation of the Indians native to the Texas Gulf Coast in northern Mexico or anywhere else in North America. 
The story of Cabeza de Vaca and his fellow travelers is well known among Texans of a certain age because in the course of their odyssey, and an odyssey it was if ever there were an odyssey, Cabeza de Vaca, Esteban, and the two other Spaniards spent the better part of seven years in Texas, becoming the first people from the Eastern Hemisphere to see the future Lone Star State since Paleo-Indians arrived more than 10,000 years before. Cabeza de Vaca's story is told at the opening of the noteworthy histories of Texas, and Texan children at least purportedly learned it when they spent the mandatory year studying the history of Texas in the seventh grade. Outside of Texas, and I'm given to understand Mexico, there are far fewer people who know the story. We know of this story because there are two contemporaneous accounts. The first is the testimony provided by the three surviving Spaniards, a fairly complete transcription of which has survived as part of the General and Natural History of the Indies, a book written by Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo, another of Spain's chroniclers of exploration. This testimony is known as the Joint Report. The second source is the first-person narrative written by Cabeza de Vaca and first published in 1542, six years after his return to Spanish territory. Several fine histories have been written based mostly but not entirely on these sources, some particularly focused on tracing the precise wanderings of the survivors through Texas and northern Mexico. I'm not going to do that. I am, however, a big fan of A Land So Strange, The Epic Journey of Cabeza de Vaca by the aforementioned Andres Resendez, and recommend it as a rollicking read if you like page-turning history, which, if you are listening to this podcast, you probably do. Now, what was this Narvaez expedition that went so catastrophically pear-shaped? Last week, in episode 11, we discussed the rivalry among the leaders of the Spanish Caribbean. You will recall that Narvaez had been humiliated by Hernán Cortés, who had gone rogue in his conquest of the Aztecs in Mexico. And Narvaez hated both Cortés and his ally in the intrigue, Lucas Vázquez de Ayón, whose own disastrous expedition to South Carolina figured prominently in last week's episode. Narvaez resolved to redeem his defeat by Cortés and exact his revenge, as it were, by leading an expedition that would effectively block Cortés' expansion into northern Mexico and, presumably, north of the Rio Grande. In 1524, the now one-eyed Narvaez was released from Cortés' jail in Mexico, where he'd been confined for four years following a failed effort to bring Cortés to heel under the authority of Diego Velázquez the governor of Cuba, whose authority Cortez had usurped and whose back Cortez had stabbed. The humiliated Narvaez is said to have wanted to engage Cortez in personal combat, perhaps a duel, but failing that, traveled to Spain in 1525 to extract his revenge in a more modern way by badmouthing Cortez at court and seeking a patent, in effect a monopoly license, to explore settle, and govern the lands north of Cortez territory in Mexico. In this, at least, Narvaez was successful, obtaining in 1526 a patent to explore and permanently settle La Florida and specified connected territories. That allowed area was indeed vast. You might now open a map app if one is available to you. 
Imagine an east-west line through Mobile, Alabama, all the way to the Atlantic in the east, and the Gulf of California on the west coast of Mexico, and then across to Baja, California at the same latitude. In the east, the patent seems to have encompassed the entire peninsula of Florida, although I have seen one source that says it did not. In Mexico, it extended south to the Rio Soto La Marina, which then was known as Rio de las Palmas. Both Austin and New Orleans are within the Narvaez Grant, so my preparation of this episode has fallen entirely within the relevant territory for just that little extra bit of authenticity. In any case, with a royal mandate and contract, no need in this case to go through the details, but it included the now familiar contingent upsides of royal offices and such, Narvaez headed to Seville, Europe's indispensable boomtown for new, new world exploration, and spent the first half of 1527 buying ships and fitting out his fleet with supplies and fellow expeditionaries. Fatefully, Narvaez was unable to find a pilot who knew anything about the Florida coast, even in Seville. Narvaez must have met our four heroes, Cabeza de Vaca, the black slave Esteban, Alonso de Castillo and Andres Dorantes in Seville that spring. The three Spaniards were all royal appointees along on the voyage to ensure that the interests of the crown were taken into account in their respective disciplines. Cabeza de Vaca was a slender man by this time in his late 30s. He was from Jerez de la Frontera, about 50 miles south of Seville, still famous for its sweet wine. Professor Resendez observes, perhaps wryly, that the English, not especially noteworthy for their faithful pronunciation of foreign names, rendered Jerez into Sherry. Well, given my own so-called pronunciation of Spanish names, far be it from me to be a critic. Cabeza de Vaca's family was distinguished but had fallen on hard times and he had to make his own way. He pursued a military career, as always in those days, the most promising path to social mobility. And at an important juncture, sided with a crown in a domestic uprising in Castile, earning friends in high places. Cabeza de Vaca was to be the royal treasurer for the Narvaez expedition, charged with assuring that the king received his rightful share, typically a fifth, of all the lucre that might be forthcoming. As a royal officer, Cabeza de Vaca had to be capable of standing up to strong and arrogant entrepreneurial conquistadors, such as Narvaez. Captain Andres Dorantes, who'd grown up about 100 miles west of Madrid, was younger than Cabeza de Vaca, had similarly distinguished himself on behalf of the crown, and for his trouble on behalf of the now Emperor Charles V, received an appointment of Captain of Infantry for the Narvaez expedition, that would effectively put him on the same social footing as Cabeza de Vaca. Alonso de Castillo was the intellectual of the trio. He was a native of Salamanca, west by northwest of Madrid, and had attended the ancient university there, which would have ensured him a life of comfort and prestige in Spain. But maybe not prestigious enough. Perhaps Castillo was just curious or perhaps he sought the much greater prestige and wealth available to the most successful leaders in the Spanish New World. All three were men of rock-solid faith, and it would come to pass 
that their unbreakable belief in their Catholic God would be, quite literally, their saving grace in the nine arduous years now ahead of them. Esteban, sometimes recorded as Estebanico, was a black slave from Morocco in northwest Africa. Now we'll go back to Resendez. Esteban came from Azamor, a substantial coastal town of some 5,000 inhabitants in the kingdom of Morocco in northwest Africa. The people of Azamor spoke Arabic and were largely Muslim. A contemporary traveler described them as civil and decently apparelled, living at the mouth of the river amidst fig orchards. Azamor was blessed by an extraordinary abundance of shad. Every year, fish sales brought in thousands of ducats to this Mediterranean town. It was precisely Azamor's wealth that attracted a powerful Portuguese armada in 1513, an expedition that included a young Ferdinand Magellan. After taking possession of the town, the Portuguese began acquiring slaves and shipping them to the Iberian Peninsula. Azamor remained a fortified Portuguese outpost until 1541. Through the vagaries of the slaving business, Esteban was taken to Spain and perhaps sold by Portuguese merchants in Seville's slave market. As his name implies, Esteban, as in St. Stephen, this young man was forced to abjure Islam and convert to Christianity at some point during his early experience as a slave. His eventual purchaser was none other than Captain Andres Dorantes. Esteban's provenance from a racially mixed, prosperous town put him already on a higher plane than the slaves from the sub-Saharan interior. The latter were mostly black, whereas roughly half the slaves from Barbaria, as this more advanced, in air quotes, coastal region was known, were white, and only one quarter were black. Thus, 16th century Spaniards could not make any assumptions about the skin color of the slaves coming from Barbaria. That is why Cabeza de Vaca described Esteban somewhat convolutedly as a quote, black man from Azamor, a depiction that contains several important clues to his background and identity. He was a vivacious, outgoing, and curious young man with a remarkable facility for languages. So the fleet left the Spanish coast on June 17, 1527, headed to the Canaries, and thereafter to Santo Domingo and Hispaniola, where it arrived in late July and stayed through September. During those two months, Narvaez devoted himself to locating further provisions for his fleet and recruiting the all-important pilot, which he again failed to do. Santo Domingo is a boom town, and Narvaez's men were fundamentally seekers of fortune. While the ship's officers were out negotiating for provisions, 140 of the 600 expeditionaries deserted, presumably to find their destiny in the hunt for gold, or the boom and pearls off the coast of Venezuela, or perhaps to find land to start a sugar plantation. As all of you who listened to our simply awesome episode on the Colombian Exchange well know, sugar was one of the old world crops that grew splendidly in the new world. It had been introduced in 1516, and by the 1530s there were at least 34 sugar mills operating on Hispaniola. Regardless, the expedition was down to roughly 450 men and 10 women when it departed for Cuba, still without a pilot, at the end of September. Then is now the peak of the hurricane season in the Gulf of Mexico. 
The deserters, it would turn out, were the lucky ones. Along the southern coast of Cuba, Narvaez divided his fleet to accelerate the acquisition of supplies, sending two ships with close to 100 men under the command of Cabeza de Vaca ahead to the port of Trinidad. Shortly after their arrival, the skies darkened, the wind picked up, and the sea began to get rough. Since the town was inland a few miles, several of the officers and a group of men went ashore to receive the provisions. Cabeza de Vaca originally remained with his ships under his command, getting ever more nervous about the weather. Then a messenger arrived requesting urgently that Cabeza de Vaca join the logistics group on the island to oversee the transfer of the supplies. So against his instincts and with great reluctance, he headed into town. Or at least this is what Cabeza de Vaca wrote after the fact, perhaps to explain why he left the ships, just as a big wind was hitting. So then the big wind, the Taino word was Harakan, so we owe that word to the dead language of the now extinct Caribbean tribes, hit the ships hard. Cabeza de Vaca's account is still scary to read all the way across the centuries. At this time, the sea and the storm began to swell so much that there was no less tempest in the town than at sea because all the houses and churches blew down and it was necessary for us to band together in groups of seven or eight men, our arms locked with one another in order to save ourselves from being carried away by the wind. We were as fearful of being killed by walking under the trees as among the houses since the storm was so great that even the trees, like the houses, fell. In this great storm and continual danger, we walked all night without finding an area or place where we could be safe for even half an hour. In any case, when the storm passed, Cabeza de Vaca and the 30 or so survivors of the away team went back to the harbor to find out what happened to the ships. Back to Professor Resendez. In any case, when the storm passed, Cabeza de Vaca and the 30 or so survivors of the away team went back to the harbor to find out what happened to the ships. Back to Professor Resendez. There were only a few traces of them at the anchorage, some buoys, but nothing more. Search parties along the coast found a rowboat atop a tree one mile away. At a distance of more than 25 miles, they recovered two bodies so bludgeoned they were impossible to identify. They also found a cape and some blanket rags. All in all that day, the Florida expedition lost two ships, 20 horses, and 60 men to the strange ways of the New World. Nervias was down to 400 now terrified settlers and fortune seekers and still hadn't found a pilot who knew the Gulf. The battered fleet, therefore, spent the winter of 1527-28 in Cuba. Cabeza de Vaca on board at port, while Narvaez hunted around for a pilot. In February, Narvaez found his pilot, one Diego de Mariello. We have seen him before. This is almost certainly the same slaver who unofficially discovered mainland Florida without a proper license circa 1510, three years before Ponce de Leon's official mission. If you listened to our episode on Ponce, you heard a bit of a spoiler about Mariello, say a foreshadowing. If you didn't listen, well, your B. And another reason to subscribe to the History of the Americans in your favorite podcast app. 
pilot on board, the fleet departed Cuba in February 1528. Now, given the scope of Narvaez's mandate, he might have lawfully settled more or less anywhere on the vast stretch of coast from north of St. Augustine on the Atlantic, all the way around to the Rio de las Palmas, today's Rio Soto la Marina, on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. The Rio Soto la Marina runs roughly parallel to the Rio Grande, about 125 miles to the south. This was where Narvaez was headed, because it was there, and only there, that he would cut off Cortez's northern expansion and that of another ruthless by reputation conquistador, Nuno de Guzman. The fleet was to head almost directly west from the southern coast of Cuba. Or at least that was the plan. Mirarello piloted the fleet into the archipelago of Canario, a beautiful group of islands south of Cuba that will be an awesome place to visit for a beach vacation if you like that sort of thing, whenever it becomes propitious for Americans to travel there. Sadly for the Narvaez expedition in Mirarello, the archipelago is very treacherous with reefs and shallows all over the place. The ship scraped bottom repeatedly over two weeks, meandering around, and only an intervening storm, which swelled the water in the shallows, allowed them to escape without mishap. Narvaez had to be worried that he picked the wrong guy. In any case, the expedition again diverted, rounding the western cape of Cuba and arriving at Havana on the north shore in early March 1528. Perhaps 493 years ago, this very day, the gravitational pull of the Greater Antilles at this point must have seemed insurmountable. But by the end of March, Team Narvaez finally achieved escape velocity heading west to Mexico. Or so they thought. On April 12, 1528, after sailing at least a couple of weeks, the fleet spotted land they assumed to be the Gulf Coast of Mexico close to their intended destination, the Rio de las Palmas. Unfortunately, it was unbeknownst to our protagonists, Tampa Bay, more than 900 miles to the east of their intended destination. Miruello had missed it by that much. Kids, by which I mean anybody who doesn't remember that voice, get smart and go ask your parents to explain. We do not today have an even remotely satisfactory explanation for how an error of this magnitude could have occurred, even assuming transporting incompetence on the part of the pilot, or why the error wasn't instantly recognizable as such on landfall. After all, if the sun rises over the land instead of setting over it, even a landlubber like me would see rather immediately that I was looking east rather than west. And these men were not landlubbers. They had negotiated their way across the Atlantic with fundamentally the same technology as Columbus in 1492. So how could it have happened? If one were to be charitable, and I will be, since this error set off a cascade that led to the deaths of 300 expeditionaries, there were several conditions that probably led to the fateful error. First, the gulf had been stormy, with lots of blowing around and tossing and turning, and thick clouds that would have made it difficult or even impossible to navigate by the sun and stars. That would have disoriented the navigators, and it would have forced them to rely exclusively on dead reckoning. There's a rather detailed discussion of dead reckoning in episode 5 of this podcast, 
Admiral of the Ocean Sea, Part 3. Columbus was very skilled at it. If you unaccountably missed that episode, the basic idea is that you plotted the ship's direction with a compass and measured the speed of the ship by estimating it against visual clues, bubbles, seaweed, and the like passing by. As long as you had a useful chart, recorded changes in direction and speed faithfully, and kept careful track of time, you would, in theory, know where you were. That leads us to the second condition, the Gulf Stream. Here is Professor Resendez on the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream enters the Gulf of Mexico from the south in the opening between Cuba and the Yucatan Peninsula. And after circling the Gulf, I should add clockwise, exits through the Florida Straits. The power of the Gulf Stream is staggering. It is equivalent to nearly 2,000 Mississippi rivers flowing together, 1.06 billion cubic feet of water per second, advancing through the ocean like an immense snake of warm water. It carries with it plants, fish, debris, and vessels at speeds that can top 100 miles in a day, or about four knots. At the Florida Straits, the speed of the Gulf Stream ranges between 1.5 and 2.5 knots, depending on the time of year. It invariably affects the speed and direction of sailing vessels. Professor Resendez has provided a helpful map of the Gulf Stream and the intended and actual routes of the Narvaez fleet, which I will put on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and on the History of the Americans Facebook page. Suffice it to say that the Gulf Stream would have made it almost impossible to sail directly west from Havana to the Rio de las Palmas in Mexico. Ordinary easterlies would not have blown the fleet fast enough to overcome the current, which in the event pushed the fleet east by northeast, even as it appeared to the hapless navigators, blinded from the sun and stars by clouds, to be headed west. Third, it is perhaps unreasonable for those of us who can instantly summon a map of the Gulf of Mexico on the little supercomputers in our pockets to judge people who were relying on only the vaguest of charts. They had no good way of knowing that there weren't peninsulas or bays or sounds that would have caused them to see land at the eastern horizon, even from the coast of Mexico. Still, having thought about all of that and written all of that, it remains puzzling to me that the fleet's leadership did not worry that the sun was rising over land in the east and consider that they might be staring at the wrong end of Narvaez's authorized territory. We will never know exactly what happened or when reality, so to speak, dawned on them. In any case, the fleet sailed along the mysterious coast for two more days until it happened upon an Indian village. On April 15th, Narvaez decided to unload the colonists and the remaining horses. The voyage had been very tough on them, and the original herd of 80, actually it was originally 100, and then they lost 20 to the hurricane, so now they had 80, and that 80 was down to a weirdly precise 42 skinny and hungry horses. Weirdly precise because both the joint report and Cabeza de Vaca's memoir were written years later based only on memory. Did they actually count the horses and remember their surviving population over the next eight traumatic years? Or is 42 actually the answer to everything? There's another literary reference for you. 
there are at least two other possible explanations for the 42 horses. First, it may be that Cabeza de Vaca counted backward as he and the others ate the horses at prescribed intervals, which you will hear in the next episode they were driven to do. Second, it may be that Cabeza de Vaca made up the number as an allegorical illusion long after the fact. This theory is too complicated to wrestle down here, but if you really go in for Cabeza de Vaca and have a thing for numerology, or just go in for Cabeza de Vaca, I highly commend the podcast A New History of Old Texas by Brandon Seal, season three of which is devoted to Cabeza de Vaca. Brandon covers the story in 25 detailed and professionally produced episodes with, it should be said, expertly pronounced Spanish. Anyway, on seeing the ships, the local Indians split town, and the explorers were able to poke around in the village. There they found mostly fishing nets and day-to-day Indian accoutrements, but they did find one rattle made of gold. This was fateful, because the Spanish would have thought that if the Indians casually left something so precious as gold behind, there must be a lot more where that came from. Dreams of a Floridian Tenochtitlan would dance in their heads and assume fatal priority over the founding of a prosaic colony of yeoman farmers and ranchers. And of course, they apparently still thought they were in Mexico, where gold had already been found in prodigious quantities. So who can really blame them for getting excited? We are at a great place to stop today. This has been a bit of a transitional episode, but no worries. People will start dying in great numbers next week, and stuff will get seriously real. Eating horses and the like. So definitely subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you again for listening, and please be sure to tell all your friends and rate the History of the Americans five stars at your next opportunity, or even write us a review on Apple, which are very, very much appreciated. Thank you again.